Our reading is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measures of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended, far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of the doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness, by in deceitful schemes. Rather, in speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The word of the Lord. He'll get you figured out. Yeah, that, that statue is not for you. Sam. Oh, okay. All right. I... That's for the winner. Oh, okay. Uh, right. Of the cornhole tournament. Uh, today. Oh, my gosh. Okay. Get up here, Sam. Makes sense. Yeah. Sam is, um, I, I'm glad to introduce Sam. Uh, some of you know him from years ago, um, different ties. He also had been at this church preaching um, pre COVID. Uh, Sam Pasco is an ordained Anglican minister. He teaches now uh, at uh, Gordon Conwell. He also does pastoral counseling with his wife, Beth, uh, who is a licensed therapist. She's on sabbatical right now, so we're going to let her be in a stage of rest. But you also have over 20 years, 30 years of ministry experience, <laughs> a lot of years of ministry. 40. 40. Yeah. You, you pastored a church in Jacksonville. You've been up here, though, for the past 10 years about? No, no, about five. About five years. Okay. Moved up here about five years ago. But you also grew up in this area. You went to Annadale High School? Thomas Jefferson. That's what I said. Be before you had to be smart. I just want you to know that. <laughs> it was only a matter of zip code back in the day. So you're from the area. You've returned back to I this area. I have returned back. Um, and Sam has been grateful to preach today as a number of us men were on the retreat and just got back. Let me offer a prayer for you before the, you, you bring God's word for us. God, our Father, I'm grateful for Sam and his years of ministry, and I thank you that he does come with such a joyfulness and a humility and an understanding of your word. Speak through him this day and open our hearts, our minds, to receive the word of God for us this day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Johnny. Thank you. Um, I did not realize that you all had such a vibrant uh, Spanish ministry here. Um, Otherwise, I would have brushed up on my three years of high school Spanish, because right now I only have two words that I can remember. Uh, one was meatballs, albondigas, and the other was bathroom. So if I'm ever in a Spanish-speaking country, I can have meatballs in the bathroom, but that is about it. So uh, 
It's also a, a great privilege for me. As I mentioned last time I was here, I have a little PTSD coming back here uh, because of my high school experience. Um, as I said, as Johnny said, I went to um, Jefferson High School, which back in the day was just a generic high school. Uh, you didn't have to be smart to go there. Uh, now they won't even let me in the parking lot. You know, they, it's, it's that kind of place now. But somehow we always ended up playing Madison High School. And I was in the same year as an incredible athlete who was in the Madison Hall of Fame named Andre Polly. And I, he was the biggest guy on his team, I was the biggest guy on my team. And so no matter what the sport was, I just got ground into the dirt by Andre Polly. Um, he, he was a seven uh, sport letterman. Um, he's in the Hall of Fame here at Madison High School. Uh, and football, he would just push me around because uh, he, was, he was the nose guard, I was the center. In basketball, he would just slam me to the floor. He was the center, I was the center. In track, we each threw the shot put. He would throw it about 50 feet, I would throw it about 20 feet. And so a lot of, every time I came here, it was just an exercise in humility. Uh, and so it's great to come back here and not have to face Andre. You're not out there, are you, Andre? <laughs> Good. Uh, can I just say a quick prayer? Um, Father, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen. Uh, that is a quote from the first chapter of the book of Ephesians, and it's the way I open up all my sermons as a reminder of what God wants to do in our lives and what we need to be reminded of. And what I'm going to talk to you about today comes primarily from the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, uh, and it's part of the series that you all are in called Becoming the People of God, and it's a wonderful chapter, uh, it's a wonderful series, and it's a lot to chew on. My son Johnny, who is here today, not Johnny Christina, although he's young enough to be my son, but um, my son is here today, and the, the picture that pops up on my phone when I dial him is a picture of him just after he finished eating like a 25-ounce steak or a 30-ounce steak. Or he went to Texas somewhere and took on this giant piece of cow and um, barely finished it, even though he's a very good eater. And you guys have got a lot to chew on. You've had a lot to chew on. You will have a lot to chew on. There's a lot of good stuff in what you have heard so far. Two weeks ago, uh, Dean preached on 1 Corinthians 12 and about the unity that we have even though there's a diversity of gifts in the body. That this is not about my gift is better than yours or an us versus them, but that we are part of the body of Christ and that we all need each other and that within the diversity of the gifts there is unity. And that's a theme that we'll see again and again and again. As a matter of fact, that's where the word universe comes from. It's the idea of unity within diversity. They took those two words and stuck them together to describe what God does in the world. God does that, and where you go to study the universe is the university. So all those words kind of fit together. Last week, Johnny, your Johnny, not mine, talked about a new humanity that God is building, um, a new body, the body of Christ. God is building uh, his bride. And God is building a new building, the temple. God's temple is the place where we dwell. So you've got the body, the bride, and the building. And I would add one more, the battalion. We are an army. 
The gates of hell will not prevail against us. And you can look at the, at the church using those four sort of overly cute little paradigms. It's a body, it's a bride, it's a building, and it's a battalion. So if you ever want to think about how, what is the church, what are we part of, all of the above. Well, Ephesus was a very important city in its day, still is in a way. Um, Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did in any other city in his travels, and that's because it was so strategically important. It was a port. It was the gateway to the rest of Asia. We see this in the book of Revelation. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Uh, And it was the center of worship of the goddess Artemis or Diana, depending on whether you were Greek or Roman. And um, she was the goddess of fertility, and she was the goddess who protected the city. And uh, Paul got himself into a lot of trouble. If you want to read the story, it's in the book of Acts. When he challenged their assumptions about how the gods worked in the world, and the, the city of Ephesus was very committed to the goddess Artemis. And Christianity always challenges the local idols and idolatry that's in a city, whether that be politics or economics or football or the arts. No matter what the local idol is, Christianity will challenge it, and that's what happened in Ephesus. And so Paul is writing to these Ephesians, and he's trying to encourage them to look at what God is doing in their midst and to say, you need to hang in there. And so the passage that was read for us so well this morning starts with chapter 4, verse 1, but chapter 4, verse 1 starts with a therefore. Uh, Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Anytime you see a therefore, you have to see what it's there for. And so you go back to the previous passage. And the previous passage at the end of chapter 3 is this. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, I've usually seen that uh, translated the word imagine, God who is able to do abundantly more than all that we ask or think or imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. That's the end of chapter 3. And whenever you hear an amen, I'm sure people were gathering up their clothes and you know, turning off their cell phones, putting them back in their pocket, getting, looking for their car keys, because they thought it was over. Well, he was just getting started. Um, so they all sat back down, and Paul said, therefore, even in prison, because Paul is writing this letter from prison, even in prison, Paul is rejoicing and focused on what God can do. To him who is able to do more abundantly than what I can ask or even imagine. Paul is celebrating the God of possibilities. Paul is saying, God is not done. I might be in prison. I might be stuck in a place where I can't do much, but God is still working. God can still do amazing things. So Paul starts with, therefore God can work. And so he starts to say, you folks, you Ephesians, have a calling. He uses that word twice in verse 1 there in chapter 4. A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. 
And then again, down in verse 4, he says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Paul is very aware that God is working. And God is calling people out and saying, I can use you. I can use you. I can use you. The phone is ringing. In each of your lives, God has a calling on you. It's not just Johnny and Dean and Corky and me and other folks that have a calling. You have a calling. God has something very specific for you to do in your life. And you need to listen for that phone call. I'm going to talk more about that in just a minute, but Johnny and Dean already talked about that before. And the ordination that you've experienced, and every one of you who has been baptized, has been ordained, has been set apart, has been brought into order through your baptism. And the very next verse, chapter 4, verse 3, begins that process. Chapter 4, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, chapter 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called, one hope that belongs to your call. Chapter uh, 4, verse 5. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and through all. That is the verse, if you have hung out in an Anglican church for any length of time, that is the verse that begins the baptism service, because that is a reminder that we are all brought into one body, and we all have been given a specific calling and gift within that body. So, God wants to accomplish things in and through us. And so to accomplish your ministry, he gives you the gift that you, are, that you need in order to be able to do that. He doesn't just say, go try it. He says, I'm going to equip you. Well, how does that work? Chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This reminded me of that passage in Numbers where Moses says, I, I can't do all this stuff. And God says, it's okay, we got this get together 70 people, and I'm going to take some of the anointing, some of the calling, some of the responsibility that you have, that you feel Moses, and I'm going to spread it around so that other people can be involved in the life of ministry within my people, within my body. It's not just Johnny and Dean and Corky that have got that responsibility. God has given that responsibility to you all, and it's a pleasure for me to see as I pull up in the morning how many of you are already involved in the life and ministry of this church, not just in this building on a Sunday morning, but all the wonderful things that you have going on in the life of your church that take place outside of this building. That is really warming to my heart, to see that you all are taking the anointing and the gifting that you have and using it, because that's the way it gets strengthened and that's the way it gets appreciated. That's what I pr tried to pray at the beginning. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desire, that's not it, no. Father, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and your incomparably great power. We've got a calling and we've got the power. Now, I want you to notice something interesting about chapter 4, verse 8. 
Paul quotes the Old Testament, Psalm 68, and he says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now, if you go back and look at Psalm 68, that verse that he's quoting, see if you can catch the difference. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. Did you catch the difference? When Paul, who knew his Old Testament backwards and forwards, when Paul quotes Psalm 68, he changes one critical thing in there. He says, God, you ascended on high and gave gifts to men. The actual psalm says, you ascended and you received gifts. The psalmist is looking at it as we are worshiping God by giving him of ourselves. Paul is so focused on God being the giver of all good things. He just can't help himself. And so when he quotes Psalm 68, he changes the whole emphasis from God receiving gifts to God giving gifts. God is the source of all giving. And so God wants desperately to bless his people. So he gave some to the apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, Shepherds, which sometimes gets translated pastors, and some teachers. Now, I want to talk about those offices. Apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Because I think it's important to understand what each one is because very, very many people in this room have got those gifts. You might be married to one, you might be the parent of one, you might be the child of one, you are certainly the friend of one. So I want to look at the gifting, the blind spots that come with those gifts, and then why we need to be thankful that those people in our lives. Now, these are my observations. You will not find this particularly in Scripture, but I think it's consistent with my study and what I've experienced. So the apostles... The apostles are the sent ones. That's literally what the Greek word means. And the word apostle is a Greek word. It's actually a verb. Uh, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus sends out the people. He says, I'm sending you out. The Greek word there is, I'm apostling you out. The apostles are the initiators. Now, in the Anglican tradition, we equate that with the office of the bishop, the episcopacy. And the charge that is given to the office of the episcopacy is primarily twofold. They are the initiators. They're the ones who are always looking over the horizon. They're trying to figure out what God wants to do next. They're the ones who are the keepers of vision. They're the ones who are saying, okay, what is God up to? How can we get in on it? How can we lead this church into the next phase? But with that, they also are quality control. In making sure that the good seed gets planted into the good soil, they also want to make sure that that good seed has a good chance and that that good seed is protected and that that good seed is well cared for and that it grows right. As the twig is bent, so grows the tree. And so the apostles are also the guardians of the faith. They're the ones who have to make sure that what gets planted is good seed and that it grows the right way. And so the apostles are looking over the horizon. The apostles are the ones who are always trying to figure out what's the next thing? What's the next thing that God wants to do? What's, what's God up to? And that's also their blind spot. 
Their blind spot is that sometimes they're so future-oriented and so driven to make the next thing happen that they lose sight of what's going on right around them. So they have a blind spot. But we need to be grateful for the apostles because they keep us moving. They keep us unsettled in our, just our current state. They're always wanting to know what is the next thing that God wants to do. And their job is to make sure that that's done well. Prophets. Prophets are not so much about predicting the future as they are proclaiming what God is about. The prophets remind us of what God has said, and based on what God has said and what is happening now, they project into the future. They don't predict so much. Occasionally that happens. But a lot of times it's just saying, if you keep, based on what God has said, if you keep doing what you're doing, this is what's going to happen. And a lot of times it isn't good. You are ignoring the revelation that God has given you so far and I'm not making any fanciful supernatural prediction. I'm just saying, says the prophets, that if you keep this up, it's going to be a disaster. The prophets in the Old Testament were constantly trying to remind people what has God said. And if you ignore what God has said, this will happen. Their job is to challenge and confront people. With, is to say, what is God ask you to do in the past, are you doing it now? And if you're not, you need to get on board with it. The downside of being a prophet is that they can be harsh. They can come across as harsh sometimes because they are the conscience of the people. And I don't like being confronted. You probably don't like being confronted. But the good news is that they remind us of who God is and who we are in him. Now, a side note about prophets <clears throat> be nice to prophets. You probably have a prophet in your life, somebody that's always saying hard things, somebody that's always sort of confronting you about things in your life that need to be changed, and that's really unfun. It's a hard calling to be a prophet. I've never known a prophet, and I've known a bunch in my life, who actually enjoyed it. Jeremiah in the Old Testament says, Lord, I don't want to do this. I don't like this. People are mad at me all the time. People are upset with me. I'm always having to say hard things. But if I don't do it, it burns in my bones, he says. Most prophets don't like being prophets, but they're exercising a really critical function in the life of the body. You've got some in this room. You've got some in your life. They're not necessarily fun people to have around, like shepherds, we'll get to in a second, but they're important. Be grateful for them and realize that they have a tough calling. Evangelists. I think of evangelism as a ministry of redirection. I was a teacher for a number of years, and that's a big word in the teaching profession. Redirect, redirect. Constantly take people that are doing something that's wrong and redirect them to the right path. Evangelists are folks who are constantly redirecting people to Jesus no matter whether they're inside the faith or outside the faith, the role of an evangelist, in a way, is to say, let's look at Jesus in this. Where is Jesus in this? How can I get you to look at Jesus in your life? I was talking to a fellow the other day who was an elementary school teacher, and he was lamenting. He was, he was saying, you know, I really feel guilty. I felt guilty my whole Christian life. 
because I've always wanted to be an evangelist, but I just don't, you know, I don't have any crusades. I don't, you know, share the four laws with people. I don't know. I don't, I don't do that. But the, the funny thing is, if you had asked every person that this guy knows, is this person somebody who shares Jesus with people? They would have said, oh, yes. This guy really shares Jesus every minute of every day and the way he talks to people and the way he brings Jesus into conversations in the gentle way that he redirects my thinking. If my thinking is on despair, my thinking is on myself, my thinking is on circumstances, this guy very gently says, well, you know, Jesus would fill in the blank. Jesus would say this to you. Now, sometimes that is spoken to people outside the faith, and it draws them more toward Jesus. Sometimes that gift is spoken to people inside the faith and draws them into a deeper relationship with Jesus. He brings good news, the euangelion. He is a reminder to keep, as we used to say when I was painting, the leading edge wet. You know, keep moving toward Jesus. Don't, don't just get stuck where you are. My wife and I were at the Louvre in Paris. I've only been to Europe once. We went to Paris, um, which is what you do if you go to France. And we went to the Louvre, and we were walking through a gallery, and I just was startled to see a picture, a painting that I had seen many, many times. And there it was in real life. And it's a picture of John the Baptist, I think by Rembrandt, and he's holding up one finger like this. I don't know if you've ever seen that picture that painting. But the, the thing about it is his index finger is about this long. It's really exaggerated. And Rembrandt was making the point that his job was to point to Jesus. He pointed beyond himself to Jesus. I love that painting. And the evangelists in my life are those who are constantly pointing me to Jesus. Now, the downside of being an evangelist sometimes is that evangelists tend to think in terms of black and white, in terms of right, wrong, left, right. You're either in or you're out. Uh, they, they can be very sort of dialectic thinkers. They can be dichotomous thinkers. They don't deal very well with grays. But the good news is that they always remind us to give as much of ourselves as we know to as much of Jesus as we know in any given situation. To give as much of ourselves as we know to as much of Jesus as we know. And I think of that as evangelism. Shepherds. Shepherds are listeners, healers. You think of Barnabas, the encourager, the guy who always had a good word, the guy who after Paul would beat people up, Barnabas would come alongside and say, it's okay, he's like that with everybody. You know, they're, they're the nice guys. We need those. Sometimes it's translated pastors. They're the ones who buck us up. They're always looking for people to include and comfort. They're drawn to people who need to be taken care of. The bad news about that is that sometimes they can be a little too soft. When people sometimes need a prophet to come along and say, you need to get moving. You need to be, remember what God said. We need to get out of this situation. Sometimes the pastors can be too quick to comfort. But we need them. We need those folks who bring comfort in the true sense of that word, comforte, which means to come with strength. We can lean on them. We can 
use some of their strength and their energy to get ourselves back on our feet. The church needs people like that. And then finally, teachers. Teachers have the gift of making complex things accessible. They synthesize and they contextualize. They take things that we just kind of go, oh, I don't understand that. And they bring us to those aha moments in life where we go, oh, now I see it. Now it makes sense. You know teachers in your life. You've had teachers in your life, people who can listen to what's going on, put it in context, synthesize the information, and bring you to the point where you go, oh, why didn't I see that before? Well, that's the gift that teachers bring. And teachers are very comfortable, perhaps too comfortable, with the gray areas of life. If evangelists are black and white, you're either in or out, left, right, up, down. Teachers see both sides. Teachers say, well, you know, here's one way to look at it. I mean, here's another way to look at this. And, you know, have you ever thought about this? Well, have you thought about that? And sometimes teachers can just sort of live in the gray. I'm that way sometimes. But teachers need sometimes to say, look, you need to decide. Choose this day who you will follow. It, you can't just read one more book on the subject. You can't just think, okay, well, maybe there's another, maybe there's a 14th side to this issue. I've only got 13 issues. You know, I've only got 13 sides here. Sometimes they need a prophet or an evangelist to come along and boot them into the point of decision and action. The goal of all of this, verse 13, until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The goal of all of these gifts, the goal of all of these uh, abilities that the body has, the goal of other people in your life is to bring the whole body to the fullness of Christ, to be everything, all that Jesus was and is. Wouldn't that be amazing? If this body could exhibit all that Jesus was and is, all of the love and the confrontation, all of the power and the humility, all of the supernatural power and the very natural life that he lived, all of that could be manifest. Well, that's the goal of all of that. And I wish I could end there, but I've got one more thing to say, and that's a warning. That is a warning that comes also from the story of Ephesus, and it comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2. This is John's revelation that he received when he was on the Isle of Patmos. And the very he writes a letter to seven churches. The very first church that he writes a letter to is to the church at Ephesus. And I'm going to read it to you. This is somewhere around 30 or 40 years after Paul wrote his letter. Now that may seem like a long time to some of you, but I promise you as it's not that long to me, okay? Uh, it was 50 years ago that I was playing basketball here, okay? Uh, it, that doesn't seem like very long ago to me because I can remember it very clearly. So it, within a very short period of time, the Apostle John had to write a letter to the same church, and he wrote this. To the angel in the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and have not grown weary. 
So far, it's all good news. They've got good doctrine. They've got good discipline. They're doing everything Paul asked them to do. They are really keeping a tight ship, etc. But he says this, Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Now, I take that as a warning to the Anglican Church in North America, of which I am a part. I've been a part of Agnes since the very beginning. I was in the room when a lot of those decisions got made a long time ago. And ACNA was born out of a concern to believe the right things, to have church discipline, to run a tight ship, to not let things get out of hand. And I think ACNA, has, the Anglican Church in North America, has done a pretty good job on that. But I worry sometimes that we have forgotten our first love. And love, in the end, is what... Jesus called the final apologetic. Those are not his words, those are Francis Schaeffer's words. But they are, people will know that the Father sent me if you have love one for another. That's in John 16. The first and great commandment, said Jesus. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So we've got the first and greatest commandment. We've got the, um, uh, the ultimate test of our discipleship is that we love one another. Just a warning that we can get all of this stuff right. We can have great discipleship. We can have great church discipline. We can know all the answers. But if we're not exhibiting a supernatural love, the world's going to go, eh. We need to be known as people, not just who believe the right things, but people who love. I'll close with this. Um, I attended a funeral not too long ago of a fellow who's probably touched the lives of many people in this room, and you may not even know his name. His name was Chuck Reinhold. Chuck Reinhold was responsible for getting Young Life started in Northern Virginia. If you've been touched by the ministry of Young Life, you owe that to Chuck Reinhold because Chuck oversaw the beginning of the Young Life ministry in Northern Virginia. He touched the lives of so many people who in turn touched the lives of other people who in turn touched the lives of other people. And I attended his funeral, and one of the very last things that they said was they remembered the guy who was giving the talk, said, you remember when Chuck would, get, would be on the phone with us and he'd want to end the conversation? He would always challenge us by saying, last word, God's word. And he would challenge the person on the phone with him, some of the people that he was training up to be leaders in young life. He would challenge them to come up with a Bible verse that sort of summed up the conversation. He would always say, last word, God's word. What word from God do you have for me today? Well, the last thing I'm going to say before I pray is last word, God's word from 1 John. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an offering and a propitiation for our sins. Let me pray for us. Father, uh, there are people here in this room who have been gifted as apostles. There are people in this room who have been gifted as prophets. We need them. There have been people in this room who have been gifted as evangelists. We need them. People in this room who have been gifted as pastors and shepherds, we need them. People in this room who have been gifted as teachers, we need them. And Lord, we pray that we would continue to be people who believe the right things about you and teach the right things about you and worship you in holiness and righteousness. But also, Lord, we are very aware that unless we have love, we're just a clanging cymbal or a loud gong or just a noise. There's no beauty and no music in us without love. We pray in the strong name of your son, Jesus, who exhibits that self-giving love in a perfect way. Amen. Lord